Thank you, Martha. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot was a well-known, faithful wife and widow, writer, and missionary. Raise your hand. You ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot? Yeah, good. Good, good, good. She's one of the most widely known Christians of the 20th and the 21st centuries, uh, and she passed away back in 2015. Some of you know a little bit of her story, but she and her husband were devoted, they devoted their entire lives of taking the gospel to the nations. And in 1956, she kissed her, her newly, uh, they've been married for a few years at this point, she kissed her, her husband Jim and said goodbye to him and to Jim and four other missionaries headed out to Ecuador. Lo and behold, this was the last time she saw her husband because her husband Jim and the four other missionaries died sharing the gospel to a local tribe. And as she grieved the loss of her husband, she felt this strong urge from the Spirit to actually go and return to Ecuador, which is why where, where we see the, just her courageous faith and, and how God had used her. And so she did that. She continued the gospel work that had been started faithfully by her husband. And for, for several years, she lived, check this out, amongst the same people who had killed her husband. And what did she do? She continued to proclaim the good news of Jesus. You see, God, God used this woman's courageous faith in a mighty way. And to this day, she still leaves behind a gospel legacy that extends far beyond her life here on earth. Now, she ended up, again, passing away in 2015. But the overarching theme of her life and writings is this. God can be trusted not because of what he's doing or our ability to understand it, but because of who he is. That, that's like her, her main theme in all of her writings. God can be trusted, not because of you or I, but because of who he is. In one of her most famous writings, she has this poem, and it says this. Many a questioning, many a fear. Many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrows, child of the king, trust them with Jesus, do the next thing. Do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care, do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all results, do the next thing. Now over time, this has become a, a huge encouragement for people in their faith. It speaks to, to us as Jesus followers, as Christians, it speaks to how we should live. Many books literally have been written just from this short little poem, and it can be summed up with this, because God can be trusted, do the next right thing. Such a simple and yet profound way of living our lives as followers of Jesus, and in all of life we have this phrase, do the next right thing. Now, as we've walked through the story of Judges, I've probably, like a lot of you, found myself reading it and, and becoming pretty critical of God's chosen people. How on earth 
can these people not get it? Over and over again. How are they blinded to God's faithfulness? How hard is it for these people to just do the next right thing? And every week it's like the Spirit, like many of you, because I've had these conversations, just keeps gently reminding you, reminding me, even on this side of the story of Judges, we're not much different than the Israelites. So why is it hard for us to just do the next right thing? Why is that so complicated for us? We say that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We would even teach our children, just do the next right thing, son. Just do the next right thing. But, but for us as, a, as adults, as, as children, as youth, why is that so hard to just do the next right thing? Thing. Well, I think as we continue on in the story of Samson this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into the heart of Samson. My prayer is that the, the Spirit all week would, would help us learn to live a life where we can do the next right thing. Where we can take a step back, talked a lot about presence last week and slowing down and actually just do the next right thing. The last two weeks, we've, we, we're, we're getting a glimpse into his heart today. Think about the last two weeks if you've been here. If you haven't, um, we've seen a lot of his character, or lack thereof, right? Like, we've seen how terrible of a leader he, he has been. We've seen his, his rash decisions. We've seen how he has led in, with impulsive and with an anxious presence. He's impulsive, violent. He's lustfully driven. Most of his decisions, have, Samson, have been self-serving in order to get himself ahead Further ahead, specifically last week in Revenge, just one-upping, just another one-upper where he just says, all right, you did this, so I'm going to do this. And then the Philistines responded and did this, and he says, oh yeah, well watch this, further on into his revenge. And it all stems, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that the last judge, we get a, a, a pretty extensive look. God gives us such a extensive glimpse into his heart with Samson. And it goes back to verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Samson went down to Timnah. He saw a young Philistine woman there. And he said, she's the right one for me. Like chapter 14, verse 1, we see into the heart of Samson. Last uh, week we saw chapter 15. It closes out with him uh, totally destroying his enemies, the Philistines. And what did he use? Anybody remember? Jawbone of a donkey. Nick, you work at the church, but I'll, I'll allow. He becomes thirsty, right? And, and at, at, he literally just slayed a thousand men. He becomes thirsty and he cries out to God for water. Not God, oh my God, where are you? How gracious you've been to me. It's God, hello, I'm dying. I need water. And God still miraculously gives him the water that he needs. And then we're left with chapter 15. It says that he leads Israel for 20 years. The next right thing for Samson is to continue to press into God's faithfulness. Like that, that's the next right thing for him to do. Lead with humility and trust God. Chapter 16, verse 1. 
Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and he went to bed with her. He follows the the lust of his heart and we see that early on in 14. He sees, he wants, and he takes. And he does the same thing here. He sees, he wants, and he takes this prostitute. The first time he went into Timnah, which was deep inside Israel territory that was controlled by the enemies. Remember, I made a big point of like, it said he went deep inside of of uh, Israelite territory where they were supposed to drive out the enemies and yet the Philistines are leading and ruling them. Now, now he goes to Gaza. It's not just deep inside their territory. He goes to the capital city of his enemies. His strength has delivered him from a lot of things up to this point. His enemies. But you know what? it won't be able to deliver him from is the lust of his own heart. This is what keeps him from doing the next right thing. Samson, in all of his strength, has only gotten weaker. His reckless behavior, his impulsive behavior is what keeps him from doing the next right thing. Specifically, his sexual addiction is what is driving every move. So what happens? The bloodthirsty Philistines, they find out where he's at in their territory, that he's gone to bed with this prostitute, and they'd want nothing more than to actually capture him. There's been this pursuit of him. He's killed their men. He's he's, he's, uh, blasphemed them, laughed in in their face, showed him his strength, and they would want nothing more than to capture and kill this dude. They figure out, where he's at, and they make this plan to ambush him at night. But something, it doesn't specifically say that the Lord woke him up, but something, remember, he's, he's God's man, appointed judge, something allowed Samson to wake up around midnight, and as he wakes up, he leaves very quietly. Not so much. Wrong. He goes, you ever seen uh, Dude Perfect? My, my kiddo's in here, teenagers. Dude, perfect. Rage monster. Anybody? Deacon, you know, you have a couple of adults raising their hand too. It's, it's fair. It's a great show. Uh, but, dude, perfect. There's this thing on there where, where Ty turns into the rage monster, and this is what Samson does. In all of his strength, what, do we, what does he do? He rips out the doors of the city gate. Dude's just killed a thousand men coming at him with swords and spears and all sorts of stuff. He just... He just killed a thousand dudes with the uh, jawbone of a donkey. And now, in all of his rage, he rips the gatepost out, bar and all, and he power cleans them up to his shoulders, and he walks off with them. Because why not? Once again, his, his strength prevails. He's out of trouble, right? He's, he's escaped the Philistines once again, the same trouble that he's put himself into, to be very clear. And he lives to see another day. And in his strength, Samson actually mocks the Philistines even more. Like, I don't know if this is what God intended. God gave him the strength and the power, but I I think there's some pride here. 
He could have left, he could have ran to Jesus, but instead he takes out the city gates, humiliates, this is why I think it is from the Lord, he humiliates the Philistines. Like culturally speaking, there's nothing worse than a city without a gate. In this time, that was your inlet and and outlet to all of the world uh, that that what exposed you to the darkness and all the things was through the city gate. So culturally speaking, there's nothing worse than losing your city gate. It left them exposed and unsafe. And to seize a city's gate was to actually control the entire town. Symbolically and literally, Samson doesn't just capture their gate. He literally takes it in all of the strength and he leaves in what seems to be a pretty effortless way. Then he carries it for 50 miles, a couple extra hundred pounds. It's not just a 20-pound weight vest for an hour doing Murph. He literally for 50 miles carries extra pounds and then he gets to Hebron and he drops the city gates and he leaves. Samson here in this moment, actually provides a warning for those who are oppressing Israel. I think that's what the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him in his strength has never been about Samson in his strength. It's always been about God's power specifically to those who are oppressing God's people. The entire time as judge, Samson has been an, an instrument of disruption through sinner and sin, as we saw last week. God's making a way as he shatters the Philistines' rule over his people. Now Samson, Samson now has an opportunity to do the next right thing, yet again. But it's almost as if the more God has blessed Samson, the more self-confident he's becoming. The more compromises we see Samson is is willing to make. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, our sinful hearts will find ways to use even God's blessings to ruin our lives. Samson could flee from his sin and run back to God. He could. The one who gives him all of his strength, he could run back to the one who has been faithful. He could do that, but he doesn't. And instead of fleeing, he continues to flirt with the same lustful desires that led him further and further away from God. Led him into enemy's territory. Now listen, I told you last week, God can use and work through sinner, and he can use and work through sin. We're on this side. It's easy for me to say that and say that, man, God's redemption story is playing out. He can use sinner, and he can also use their sin. But in that moment, you've got to just see how Samson is just going further and further away from God. Now, God's plan is redemption, and he will use this. But being there, I, I just wonder, like all of his lustful desires have done nothing but lead him further and further down the road. There's an old saying by a, by a Scottish theologian, his name's Samuel Smiles, and he says this, sow a thought and you reap an act. Sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. Samson continues to sow seeds of lust and he continues to flirt with it, not flee, and now he finds himself in a new place where 
we see he's about to flirt with something that not even his own strength will be able to prevail. Not be able to, to overcome the lust of his heart. And so as the story goes, Samson ends up in a new town in the Valley of Sarek, which is a bit foreshadowing. And here's what's interesting about that. This valley gets its name specifically from a grape, one that is primarily used to make wine. Now remember, he took the vow. His parents, as well as him, took the vow to abstain from any type of alcohol. Further and further away from God, he finds himself in the Valley of Sarik, known of, for making a specific type of grape, growing a grape on a vine, specifically for wine. And yet again, he finds himself in this place, and something has his eye. Now, we don't know a lot of context here for time. I don't know if he just power cleaned that city gate, went 50 miles, and then went straight down into the valley. We don't know that. But what we do know is that Samson has laid his eyes on a Philistine woman yet again named Delilah. And based on his previous interactions with women, he saw her, he wanted her, and so he took her. Except this time we see Samson, I don't know any other way to describe it besides his head over heels for Delilah. Scripture tells us that this wasn't just a prostitute. This wasn't just somebody that he wanted to take. This is someone who Samson fell in love with. So, so that, that means there's time here. There's, there's lots of time for Samson to lay his eyes on this woman named Delilah and to pursue her. He loves her. I don't believe it's the covenantal love where we make a covenant between God and one another, I think it's safe to assume that the only thing Samson has taken into consideration is fulfilling the desires of his lustful heart. And over the course of the next few verses, we see, we see a sad story play out. The Philistines, once again, they hear that their most wanted man is back and they approach Delilah find out where he's at, and they go to this woman, and they offer her a deal she cannot refuse. Verse 5, the Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you. Interesting, Philistine leaders. We've gone from just Philistine men to now we're, we're in the capital city, and we literally have the leaders of the Philistines coming to her and saying, hey, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from. So we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, 1,100 pieces of silver is an absurd amount of money, of money thinking about the cultural uh, differences between us and them. That would be several million dollars in our time. According to all historians, thinking about shekels and, and silver and what it meant, 1,100 pieces would be well over several million dollars. The Philistine leaders have put the money on the table and said, hey, we'll pay you this amount. If you can just see this through, if you can do this for us, we want you to know, we want you to find out and let us know where his strength comes from. So it's not like a, can you try to do this? What's on the table is several million dollars for Delilah, where she looks 
and says, okay, I will see this fulfilled. And they said, we'll pay you when you come to us. And you tell us where his strength comes from. Now, Scripture doesn't give us any insight as to any affections she really has towards Samson. We don't know any of that. All we know is this, is Samson fell in love. doesn't say it was reciprocated. We just know Samson fell in love, and 1,100 pieces of silver far outweighed any, if any, affection that she had for him. So she sets out using clever manipulation to outsmart and to defeat someone who up to this point has been pretty invincible. Samson possessed supernatural strength from God, and yet he could never overcome the common weakness of many of us. An appetite for lust. Like what makes us, me, you, what makes us think we have the power to over, overcome this weakness in our own strength? We, we are literally reading about one of the strongest men, God's chosen man for this time. All of the strength and power, what makes us think we'd be any different? That we ourselves have enough power to overcome this weakness in our own strength. As Samson continues to, to flirt with these desires, he's lured more and more into the game that she's playing with him. You can, you can follow along and see that. I'm not going to get into every different thing. But all of his God-given strength didn't even protect him from the lust of his heart. Or the emotional frailty of her manipulation. He's duped into thinking this woman loves him. He can't see past her. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. And what's wild about this entire story, Samson might have been lustful and impulsive, but he wasn't stupid. Like, we see how he's leading. But he, he sure wasn't stupid. He could have just told her the truth. Nick and I were talking about that this week. We read this, and, and he said, why didn't he just tell her the truth? She's asking where the power came from. What is so harmful about saying it comes from the Lord? He could have just been honest with her. But shame had consumed him, because for him to say it comes from the Lord, he clearly is not walking with the Lord. Shame has consumed him. So instead of doing the next right thing and actually just running back to the Father... Even in his sin and all of his shame, he just kept believing the lie from the idol that had enslaved him. And as the story plays out, you got you to gotta think he knows the risk that's involved of telling her where his strength comes from. But he loves her. And he wants the woman he adores to be convinced that his love is true. And all of the emotional manipulation runs counter to his common sense. And after several lies and more and more manipulation and seduction, she played a card that finally wears his soul down. Verse 15, how can you say that you love me, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you've mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Verse 16, because she nagged. 
him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out. Vexed his soul is what other translations say. That's almost the same analogy as a deer pants for water. As a, as a deer is dying and is just wanting the streams of flowing water, just needs to taste the water, almost like Samson was a few months prior to this, after killing a thousand men, he's, 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 his soul is <clears throat> vexed before the Lord. She nagged him day after day, pleaded with him until she wore him out. He told her the whole truth in verse 17. Her plan of seduction and manipulation has worked. In the end, we see that his lustful desires have blinded him from doing the next right thing. So instead, he chooses to, to just believe that if he gives in to her fully, that she, this idol that he's per, just pursuing over and over again, that if he would just, if he just chooses to believe that if he gives in to her fully, then she would then fully accept him. Just like the idols of her heart, over promise and under deliver. Before we close out the scene, Samson's story, it's sad, it's detrimental, but God gives it to us for a reason. His word is for a purpose. Like we always talk about the better way. And this story makes it so clear that there is a better way, and it's run to Jesus. As quickly and as often as you can, run to Jesus. Even in your darkest moments, in your most sinful desires, run to Jesus. Because the more we flirt with sin, the more enslaved we become to the lustful desires of our hearts. And lustful can mean a lot of different things. Success an idea or thought that we can have this perfect marriage or perfect family or perfect career, the pursuit of money, but especially sexual immorality. I want you to think back to Proverbs. If you were around this summer, we, we walked through Proverbs looking at wisdom. And what did wisdom say? Proverbs 5, I want to read a couple of these. My son, this is wisdom talking. Pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Proverbs 7, 1 to 3, my son, obey my words. Please treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live and guard my instructions as you have had the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You see, Solomon was the wisest man to ever walk the face of the planet beside the Son of God. In he, wisdom, is saying, listen, pay close attention, keep these commands, bind them to your heart, obey my words, treasure them, live by them, guard them, tie them to your fingers, write them on your heart. You see, the wise father is pleading with his son to take heart when it comes to the lustful desires of his heart. And what does he keep drawing his, his son's attention to? Proverbs 5, 3 through 5. Though the lips of the forbidden woman 
drip honey. Two weeks ago, honey. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her words are smoother than oil. In the end, she's as bitter as a wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight for Sheol. Proverbs 6, clinging to the word of God, the wisdom, he says, they will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a wayward woman. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Proverbs 7, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. You see, the wise father says, listen to wisdom. Keep to it. It's not a matter of if you will be tempted. It's you will be tempted. And the wise father says, keep drawing his attention multiple times to the foolishness of sexual sin. He wisely and sternly tells him, you're going to walk into a world full of sexual foolishness. And he warns him of the consequences, the, st- the strategies of temptation. It's almost as if he was reflecting on the story of Samson and many others. You can look at chapter 5. The father of lies is good at what he does. It's going to look like honey. Man, that sin's going to look real good. You're probably going to be attracted to it. But wisdom says it will poison you. You know what honey tastes like. It shouldn't leave this bittersweet taste in your, your mouth. You know it's sweet. If it was honey, it wouldn't do this to you. It wouldn't poison you. So don't be fooled. Whatever that woman is saying, family, listen to the words today. Man, let wisdom speak to your heart today. Every one of us in this room has either previously or is currently struggling with some sort of sexual sin. You've lusted. You've had thoughts. You've acted out on those thoughts. You've sinned. You've been sinned against. Whatever it is this morning, I want us to see the better way from the text. The next right thing to do in running to Jesus is we learn to fight and kill sin. Take the step, the next right thing, run to Jesus. And how do you do that? You learn to fight and kill sin in your life. Wisdom says flee from temptation. Not flirt, flee. Especially sexual sin. It's not meant to be flirted with. It's attractive. There is a certain charm about it. And it will always draw you in. It's inviting, it's seductive, and it tells this alluring story. And if we flee from it, and run to Jesus, we're promised the better way. Because chapter 5 of Proverbs, verse 22, says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnared him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Man, Samson was ensnared to the sexual desires of his heart. It ruled him. What started as something small has now become this raging fire of lust in his heart. The more he fed it, the more it grew. The more he gave in, 
and fed those desires, the more he felt he needed it. Family, the more it happens, the easier it will be to stay entangled to it. The harder it's going to get to stop. Like here, here's the deal. I don't think uh, any of us intentionally step into a snare. You see it and you're like, oh, there's a snare. I shouldn't step there. Especially the snare of sexual sin. John Mark Comer says this. Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the stronger surface level desires of our flesh. This is exacerbated by a culture where the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them. But in reality, be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. And here's why. Giving into the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery and in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. Flee from it. May we not... Flirt with it. May we flee from this. Proverbs 5, 7 and 8. So now, sons, listen to me and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Proverbs 6, 24 and 25. They, my commands, this wisdom I'm giving you, will protect you. Running to Jesus, fighting sin and killing it will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a wayward woman. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Look at the progression in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked. I looked. That's all I did through my lattice. Verse 7, I saw among the inexperienced. I noticed among the youths a young man lacking sense. This wayward woman says, crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house and at twilight in the evening, in the dark, in the night. Which, by the way, Delilah's name is reference to, to darkness. I just think there's something to that. In the evening, in the dark of the night, a woman came to meet him dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda He's the father of lies. He will always lie to you. Flirting with temptation all the way down the street. Flee. Don't flirt. Run to Jesus. So how do we do this? How do I flee from this? Well, the way we fight and overcome our flesh and put it to death isn't through willpower, but through the Spirit's power. Ironically, that leaves Samson because of his own lustful desires and we'll get to that next week. I'm not even going to cover uh, chapter 16, verse 20. That's a whole other sermon that goes into next week. But we see it leaves him. The Spirit of, of the Lord leads him, leaves him. Could we learn from Samson's story that we, brother and sister, you have power, access to the Holy Spirit via the practices of Jesus. Samson had access to the power of the Spirit, but he chose to flirt and not flee. Comer goes on in his book, Live No Lies, and he says, isn't it any wonder that when Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil, he was fasting? Man, I love, I love this. In fact, it was after 40 days of fasting. It's easy to misinterpret this story. This is when Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days. It's easy for us to, to misinterpret this. 
He says, I did for years. I took it to mean the devil waited until Jesus was just exhausted and weak to make his move. But this is a gross misunderstanding of the the reciprocal relationship between fasting and spiritual power. Forty days in, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power and was able to wisely discern the devil's lies and dismiss his temptations with such skill. Such is the potential of fasting or any other disciplines of your faith. Fasting, confession, repentance, prayer, reading, delighting in who God is, community amongst brothers and sisters, practicing this confession and repentance. James says, confess your sin to one another. Notice he says, to each other. Like what raw and powerful, genuine freedom might come when you name your sin in the presence of a loving community. Like just the, the, the act of naming your sin out loud to people you know and trust has the power to break chains. Find ways of living in reliance on the Spirit's presence and power in your ordinary life. Whatever that needs to look like. Like think about your habits, your presence with people throughout the day. Does this sow into my flesh or to my spirit? The habits I have. Scrolling for an hour in the morning, scrolling for three hours at night, doing this, doing that. Does this sow into my flesh or my spirit? Will this make me more enslaved or will the power of the spirit actually set me free? key to spiritual formation is to change what we can control, your habits, in order to influence what what we can't control, your flesh, your lustful desires. And for some of us, this means we need to restrict what you're looking at online. Like if, if sexual temptation is a thing, quit watching certain TV shows. Quit scrolling Twitter or, or Instagram. Watch what social situations you put yourself in. Switch jobs if it's becoming too easy to flirt with another person. Flee. Flee from this, brothers and sisters. And some of you are thinking, man, this guy's nuts. He's overreacting. Proverbs 5, 23, he dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he's led astray. This is me pleading with us, pleading with my own self to stop flirting with sin and to flee from it. He dies for lack of discipline. Sexual sin isn't something to flirt with. It's attractive. It's extremely addictive. And those two things combined are lethal. So any sacrifice you need to make, any action step you need to take, it's well worth it. And then I want you to pause and consider to the one who says, well, that's never going to happen to me. Pride comes before the fall, brothers and sisters. Samson is your reason you should flee. Don't flirt with it. So what do you need to flee from today? Lastly, consider what's ahead. What do you need to flee from and then just consider One more time, verse 11, at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. There's consequences to your sin. It's always going to seem enticing and attractive right now, but in the end it looks entirely different. 
Wisdom says, consider the end before you get there. Hear the, the story of seduction in chapter 7 played out in closing. He says, my husband is at home. This is, this is the prostitute in Proverbs chapter 17. My husband is at home. He went on a long journey. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. Sound like Delilah? She lures him in with flattering talk. He follows her impulsively, how we've described Samson, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Samson doesn't know what it's going to cost him. We'll see that next week in chapter tw- or verse 20. But the consequences of his sin, I just I ask you this morning, what is the next right thing that you need to do? Father, would you draw near to us right now? Would your spirit be gentle with us? You're a God of compassion. You're a God who can break chains. You're a God who can, uh, you're more powerful than death. And I, I just, Proverbs points to where sin leads us is to death. And you say, the better way is through my son Jesus because he's conquered death. And so for us, maybe we're, we're left just struggling right now. We feel a lot of shame for actions. We feel a lot of shame for how we've responded and handled things. Would you draw near to us, Lord? Would you lift our eyes to your goodness and to your grace? The enemy would want nothing more than to have somebody leave here beat up. And you would want nothing more and then to draw near to the brokenhearted. You're a God of restoration, reconciliation. You step in, you intervene when we don't know how to move forward, when we don't even know what the next right step is. Your spirit intercedes on our behalf. So would you do that right now? Trust that you're at work. God, this message was not intended to beat anybody up. Father, this message is a message of grace to sinners and sufferers. just want us to know that there's a better way. That we don't have to live a life enslaved to sin. That we can walk in freedom. We don't have to carry this stuff. The message of your son Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Holy Spirit, 
do what you need to do today. May we taste of your grace and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.